But what's interesting is that, you know, rarely in my walk as a believer, as a pastor, as a co-laborer in the gospel, um, either pastorally or even professionally, have I come across a follower of Jesus who, when I, when I ask them, how is their walk going with the Lord? Rarely when I ask that question, do I get the, you know, it couldn't be better. Normally what I get, most are quick to share that it, it, it's okay. But I would say m- many have a tendency to quickly point out where their walk isn't what they expected it would be. It's, it, it's as if as we have in our mind a model of what the perfect Christian life looks like, what the perfect Christian family looks like, or the perfect Christian father or mother or student. And... and We're constantly comparing what we're experiencing with this idea of what perfection is. And while it's a good thing to desire to be more like Jesus, there is a problem when we live and we breathe with a sense of condemnation for failing in the Christian walk. See, when Jesus died for our sins and redeemed him to himself, when he reached down into the muck and said, you are mine, he started a process in us where we would become progressively more and more and more like him. And to desire to be like him is a good thing. In fact, it's a supernatural thing in the sense that any desire to be like him shows that the spirit is at work in you. And because we no longer stand condemned, friends, we can be filled with joy. Exuberant joy. Life-changing joy. Visible joy. That when the question is, how is your soul? It's not, well, it's okay. It's, I have been redeemed. I have been redeemed. And because of that, I am so grateful. And this morning, we'll find Paul emphasizing here in Philippians 3 that we were made for something more. We were made for something more than what we were. In fact, Paul says it's commendable, desirable to pursue that something more. But he also knows our tendencies. He had the same ones. And therefore, this morning, he wants us all to be clear that growth as a follower of Jesus is 100% all of grace. It's motivated by grace. It's enabled by grace. It's infused by grace. And the result is that joy abounds. More specifically, Paul helps us understand this morning how our lives as followers of Jesus can be characterized by joy, why they should be characterized by joy. And he does that by contrasting 
what he desires for us with those whose minds and hearts and eyes are focused on other things. In fact, it seems he started this thought back in chapter 2 as he described Christ's example of what it looked like to put others before self. He then went on in chapter 2 to highlight Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then he shifts from the model of Christian leadership And instead of providing additional examples of godly Christian leaders, he contrasts genuine Christian faith with those who have overlooked grace. So let's begin reading in chapter 3. I pray that you are able to see how our growth as Christians is motivated, enabled, and infused with grace. So chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, while countless jokes have been made about this finally, if you've been reading Philippians as Jason encouraged you, you would know that the next chapter, Paul starts with another finally, which pastorally means that we can just keep going on and on with finalies. But finally in those times was actually a conjunctive phrase that simply means so then or therefore. It's to keep us in mind of what he's been talking about. And so he's saying, okay, so I've shared half of the letter with you. My, My thought is halfway through, but I want you to stay with me. And then he says, I know you're tired of me saying this. How many of you had your parents tell you this? Anybody? Anybody ever had their parents say, hey, you know what? I know you're tired of me saying this, but I'm going to tell you again. Yeah. There's probably a reason they did. Yes? Okay, thank you. (laughs) He says, you need to get this, guys. Joy should characterize your lives. As a follower of Jesus, your life should be motivated by the grace extended to you. And so the first thing we're going to see as we continue on is that joy-filled growth in Christ is motivated by God's grace. See, look out is repeated three times. But I don't think Paul is talking about three different groups of people here. I believe he's describing the same type of person in three different ways to reinforce that this is a significant problem in the church. Genuine followers of Jesus were no longer viewing Christ's finished work as sufficient for faith in Christ. See, these devout Jews 
who willingly believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, thought that Gentiles had to become Jews before they could believe in Jesus. See, for them, life in Christ wasn't the result of grace. It wasn't motivated by grace. It was also by works, actions, lineage first that resulted in grace. See, they made circumcision a requirement. Works-based righteousness was already taking up residence in the church. Well, why was this occurring? See, the problem was that these Jews who recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah were viewing the Old Testament scriptures as establishing the works that were required to find favor with God. You must fulfill these laws, you must follow these rules, and then because these rules and these laws are followed, Jesus' is coming confirmed it. In a sense, they were saying, see, we've done these things. And, and, and that resulted in the Messiah's coming. Therefore, everyone needs to do the same things. Wherein the reality is that the Old Testament points to Jesus' coming. It anticipates it. It announces His coming and it's his coming that's the ultimate hope. And because hope has come, joy abounds. I have a sense that an example of how this plays out may help a bit better. See, Passover not only remembered the night when the angel of death passed over the homes who placed the blood over the doorposts, but it also looked forward to Jesus Christ who was our Passover lamb sacrifice for us. It's a both and. So Paul says, be aware, look out for those who place any emphasis on works-based righteousness. He says it's simply wrong. The circumcision of the flesh, and you might be thinking, well, where is that? Well, that's what mutilation is. Is not required to be a child of God. So if that's the case, if mutilation is not required, then what is required? Well, Paul described it to the Ephesian church. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? so that no one may boast. So he's saying circumcision's not required. Works are not required. For us, speaking in tongues is not required. Responding to an altar call is not required. There is no work that is required for us to be saved. See, Paul's saying that a believer has undergone 
the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of the Lord, which is an act of grace alone. Hearts that are against the things of God, that are hostile towards Him, are miraculously changed by the working of the Holy Spirit. And this change produces a desire to know and grow in the Lord Jesus. And as a result of this miraculous work, Paul says, we are the real circumcision. We are the real work of God. And though he's speaking particularly about circumcision here, for this was the error of the church, he's emphasizing the principle behind it is that he's emphasizing that no personal effort, achievement, or cultural experience contributes to the heart change believers experience in Jesus Christ. And because there's nothing in us that contributes to the heart change, because our effort is not required, Paul says we can be filled with great joy. So then he goes on to stress this fact by using himself as an example. He's saying if there was any way for a person's effort to contribute to their salvation, he would have figured it out himself. He says, guys, okay, so you're, this whole circumcision thing, like really, if you think that's what's required, you've really missed the point. Because he verbally provides his resume of what it means to truly be a devout follower of Yahweh. He writes beginning in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Everything that could have been required, he did. Now, he's not saying that he was sinless. What he was saying is that he fully applied the law which allowed for the atonement of sins as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He did everything he could have. And yet, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, I did all these things. I studied in ways none of you could. I demonstrated by persecuting the church. And I count it as loss. See, whatever gain he had, think about that resume. What would be the gain in that culture of that resume? Power? Prestige? 
accolade upon accolade, privilege. Do you think when he walked into a town, he was not honored? Anything that had earthly cultural value, he had. And despite all that gain, from an accounting standpoint, everything that was his in this credit column, he says, now sits in the debt column. It's not even that it wasn't worth anything. It actually was against him. And then he goes on to help us understand the consequence that comes from following the Lord Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. So all those things he had... He says, I have lost them. Well, what did he lose? Well, he lost his friends. He lost his intellectual peers. They now mocked him. He lost his home. He became a traveling evangelist. What did he suffer? Well, he doesn't describe it here. He does that to the letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, he describes it this way. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews. Remember, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Five times at the hands of the Jews. The forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through a many sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things. There is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What did he lose? Everything. So the natural question is, well, does he share those things to draw attention to himself? Is he complaining? I don't think so. Paul places all that he has lost aside for the infinite value of knowing Christ. See, as I'm thinking about it throughout the week, what he's given up on account of his faith, I recognize I would likely complain. I would remind folks of what I gave up. But instead, he shares his perspective very differently than I would as he continues. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Literally, dog doo-doo. That's what it is. I don't get that. Like, that's beyond my comprehension. That all the power, all the wealth, all the fame, all the things of this earth that entice, he can simply say they're worth nothing. Because if you're like me at all, you do appreciate those things. I don't know anyone who doesn't like having money in their bank account. I really don't know anyone who doesn't secretly like being praised. They do something well, somebody says something, you see that little smirk that happens on their face. And he says it's worthless. Because I know my Lord. So now consider the contrast. On one hand, Paul describes what he had. Everything that mattered to the people of Israel. He had privilege, he had prestige, he was without any need. Do you think he walked into a city and didn't have food? Never. And on the other hand, Paul shares with what he has now. He says, Jesus Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And it's something he couldn't earn. I worked my tail off for all of this. And what I have now is nothing that I could work for. And Paul looks at the two. And he says, you know what guys? There is absolutely no comparison. Nothing that the world has to offer can compare with Jesus. And this perspective of looking at what the world has to offer and saying it has no value is entirely motivated by rightly understanding God's grace. So consider your own life. What are the things that you, we, I might boast in that reflect our own effort? What's on this column over here? Wealth, status, a spouse, behavior of children, your education, your children's education, Letters after your name, emotional stability, business success, athletic achievement, denominational alignment, your method of family worship, maybe the seminary you attended, maybe even which version of the Bible you use. According to Paul, we are to look out, right? Look out for people who put confidence in earthly things. 
We are to look out for people who use earthly accomplishment as a requirement for value. If we're to watch out for them, and given he's provided some distinct examples of what godly Christian leaders looked like earlier in the book, implicitly he intends for us to understand that we're also to keep an eye out for those whose consistent and persistent boast is in the Lord. Those whose confidence rests in Him and those whose consistent joy, consistent joy is in Him not in their circumstance. See, when Jesus is truly the center of one's gratitude and one's love and one's worship and one's hope, they stand out, don't they? He says, let those folks be your example. And so that brings us to Paul's second point this morning. The joy-filled growth in Christ that's motivated by God's grace is also enabled by God's grace. See, as we're motivated by grace to recognize that all the world has to offer is rubbish, we're also enabled by God's grace to be more and more focused on Jesus Christ as our soul sufficiency and sense of satisfaction. Verse 9. So picking up an eight, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, verse nine, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here we have Paul, who miraculously met Jesus face to face, sharing that his life's pursuit is to know Jesus. Generally, if I know someone, I don't say that my life's pursuit is to know someone. Jason, I'm sorry I don't wake up saying I want to know Jason, because I know Jason. <laughs> now, for those who are married, you recognize that there generally is a desire to know your spouse more. And I believe that that's what Paul means here, is he desires to know Jesus more and more. And he says that I may know Jesus by any means possible. So, he's motivated by God's grace to see the Lord as sufficient compared with what the world has to offer. And then he's enabled by God's grace to know Jesus more and more. 
But as we know Jesus more and more, we begin to know God more and more. And we know that there is no end to the degree to which we know God. Our knowledge of Him and growing knowledge of Him throughout eternity will never stop. And so though it's our duty as pilgrims here on earth to know Christ better as we prepare for eternity, it's grace that enables that pursuit to become our delight as well. See, Paul uses this opportunity to encourage us to pursue Christ in a very intentional way. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. See, this is Paul's heart cry for the Philippians and for us, that we would depend upon grace to become more like Christ. Forgetting what lies behind, this column over here, and straining forward to what lies ahead. It's what he has in Christ. See, Paul's aware that if followers of Jesus, Jesus are to look at him as a model, he is a model who is also in transition. Not that I am already perfect or have already attained this. He knows he is progressively becoming more and more like Christ. He no longer desires the accolades that he had as a well-educated Pharisee. He only wants to be followed to the degree that he is enabled by God to pursue Christ. He says, not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect. He repeats it in verse 13. I don't consider that I've made it my own. He's reiterating, guys, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not there. See, it's good to have a point in time where one's faith in Christ is proclaimed, is it not? Craig, I know you know exactly where you were sitting when the Lord called you and you recognize Him as Savior. wasn't too far from where you are right now. And for those who have the blessing of being able to live a life after that point in time where the Lord changes their heart, 
There should be a pursuit of the Lord Jesus that's motivated and enabled by grace. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He refuses to stand on past triumphs, on past successes, on things that have already happened, and he depends on grace to pursue Christ. He presses on. He's running the race with his eyes focused upwards. He's looking forward to the glories that are to come, not backwards at the glories he already received. Now, some might think, well, that's great, Paul. That's your calling, not mine. So to emphasize that this perspective should be shared by all believers, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. It implies that any follower of Jesus should share this perspective. Living according to what the Lord has already revealed to them, Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So God's redeeming grace saves us. It motivates us to see those things that are earthly as worthless. It enables us to pursue Christ. But sadly, not all followers of Jesus or even Christian leaders share Paul's perspective Many continue to find satisfaction in yesterday's grace, missing out on today's and tomorrow's displays of grace that lead to increasing joy. So Paul says, guys, keep your eyes focused on those that are pursuing the Lord. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We are to imitate those who desire to know him more and more. So who comes to mind for you? Who does the Spirit place on your heart who you sense pursues the Lord Jesus to know him more and more the way Paul describes here? Friends, I promise you it would do your heart well to spend time this week asking the Lord, who to model? Who are those people who seem to be steeped with God's word? For those who know Miss Donna, she's someone who comes to mind. You start talking to her and what just naturally flows off her tongue is the word. There's some whose joy is evident despite the circumstances they find themselves in. See, there's a difference between the superficial everything's hunky-dory that you hear on a Sunday and when someone actually is living with joy despite the circumstances that they find themselves in. Do you know the difference? Can you tell? There are some that have a peace 
that can only be explained by the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And by encouraging us to keep our eyes on those who are excellent models, Paul implies that some are not good models. How do we know the difference? It's called discernment, friends. See, these folks who Paul warns the Philippians about seem to be self-professed believers in Jesus. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I've often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Why can I say that they seem to be self-professed Christians? Why else would Paul find himself in tears over them? Why would he be concerned that unbelievers would somehow lead Believers astray. It's likely not. See, in the context, Paul's encouraging the Philippian church to model mature Christians, right? It's unlikely that these Christians would be tempted to model their life upon those who don't claim to be a Christian. And when describing these folks as enemies of the cross, I don't think he's referring to every unbeliever who's an enemy of the cross. He wouldn't point it out that way. So you have to ask, well then who are these folks that we're to avoid? Well, it's those who claim to follow Jesus who can talk a good game, who are successful in pulling the wool over the eyes of the undiscerning and often position themselves as Christian leaders. But what's missing from their lives is a focus on the cross. See, Paul was clear. He desires, this is in verse 10, to know of both the power of Christ's resurrection and to share in his sufferings. This is Isaiah 53. And the folks that he's saying you need to avoid never adopt that stance. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ is not something they encourage. They'll actually condemn you saying you're not a strong enough believer if you're suffering. See, instead of being drawn to suffering for Christ's sake and rejoicing that you get to suffer with the Lord, They desire creature comforts. Some Christian leaders today say followers of Jesus should never suffer. Some of these leaders are endlessly drawn to temporal blessing as a sign of favor with God. They seek to please themselves. Paul says these individuals are destined for destruction. which means they're not authentic believers. They're deceived. 
And while we are to watch out for them and avoid them, when we look at the way Paul describes them, we must realize that they are to be pitied. See, what they're focusing on aren't explicitly evil or wicked things. They're simply the wrong things. We should pray for them because what they value and what they cherish is tied to this world. Paul's concern here is not spiteful. He issues it with tears. You generally don't cry over someone if you're being spiteful toward them. His heart is broken on account of the deception. He grieves the condition of their heart. And so our understanding of God's grace is what enables us to pray for these leaders and not callously condemn them. Authentic Christians, those whom Paul instructs us to imitate, live with their eyes and their hearts and their minds focused on Christ's return. Verse 20. Contrasting those who have their minds set on earthly things, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it... We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. As followers of Jesus, we're called to intentionally pursue Jesus, relying upon His enabling grace to prepare us for heaven where our true home is. This is the only mindset that helps us understand Paul's perspective towards suffering. One of my seminary professors once wrote this. It's something that I keep in a file. He wrote, Genuine spirituality cannot live long without an attitude that is homesick for heaven that lives with eternity's values in view, that eagerly awaits Jesus' return, that anticipates the day when Christ Himself will bring everything under His control and will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Sadly, my attitude isn't always homesick for heaven. Is yours? Mm. 
I believe this is why Paul instructs us to imitate those who do live for Jesus, who look forward to his return, who model what it looks like to be homesick for heaven. Because it's not natural. But here's the thing. Watch what happens here. See, when we as followers of Jesus find those people to imitate, right? Those whose minds and hearts are joyfully willing to share in His suffering, who look forward to His return, when we find those people to imitate, we become examples for others to imitate. Friends, this is not simply a pastoral responsibility. Like y'all can't sit there and say, yeah, we got four elders and maybe the two deacons can kind of slip in there. When we begin imitating people who are so homesick for heaven that lives look different, our life begins to look different. It is a blessing that we all get to participate in. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live differently from the world. We are called to promote a standard of life, both walk and talk, that models for future generations what it means to be motivated by God's grace, what it means to be enabled by God's grace to find our whole satisfaction in Jesus. We have the privilege, and it is a joy-filled privilege, to model what it looks like to suffer for Christ. To grieve those who are deceived. And to trust Him alone. Friends, we are blessed to be given opportunities to serve as examples of what it means, as it says in Hebrews, to strive for peace with everyone as it pertains to relational conflict. As we're motivated and enabled by God's grace, we are privileged to serve as examples of what it means to stand up for righteousness in our society. I got to see this week that our brother in the back over there got to speak to the Pueblo, I think it was Pueblo School District, about the, the challenge of abortion. Standing up for righteousness in our culture. Friends, we are to imitate others whose constant confidence is in Christ, who boast in Christ, who seek to suffer for His sake, and as we do this, we are actively depending on His enabling grace to fulfill the commission to go and make disciples. That's the mandate, is it not? To go and make disciples? It was Jesus' final instruction. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him, and he then charges us to go and make disciples. 
this morning, this passage about, is about what it means to go and make disciples. That we are so motivated by God's grace for redeeming us and so enabled by God's grace as we pursue Christ that we become worthy followers of Jesus who are so filled with joy that others desire to imitate us for God's glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are your workmanship. For those of us who know you, for those of us who you have redeemed, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I can speak and implore you on behalf of many in this congregation who nodded their heads when I confessed my own propensity not to be homesick for heaven. Help us. Give us a mindset that looks at all the world has to offer and counts it as rubbish. Give us hearts that are less about condemning those who don't know you, who are deceived in their thinking about you, and are quick to grieve and to pray and to intercede on their behalf that they would know you rightly. Lord, give us strength to discern and wisdom to understand how to model and how to imitate and how to emulate and how to follow those whose desire is to glorify you. Let that be our hope. That your name the name Jesus. The one who, as Paul said, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But came to redeem, to save. Lord, let us find your son Jesus as all satisfying and all beautiful that our hearts might be encouraged that we might live differently that you might be glorified in us it's in his name we pray amen